Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. So let's begin with our top story. China's state media signals a lack of interest in resuming talks with the United States. Without new moves that show the U.S. is sincere, it is meaningless for its officials to come to China and have trade talks. This according to a commentary carried by state-run Xinhua News Agency and the People's Daily, otherwise known as the Communist Party mouthpiece. In the FX market, it means dollar strength and it means a Chinese currency heading towards the seven mark. Really pleased to say to weigh in on the FX. FX markets. Shahab Jalanous joining us now, Credit Suisse head of FX and macro trading strategy. Good morning to you, Shahab. It's the question we always ask Is China tolerating yuan weakness or is it engineering it? I think it's uh, at the moment uh, accepting yuan weakness rather than necessarily engineering it. Um, you're seeing a widening gap between the offshore renminbi um, and the onshore level, the fixing onshore, which generally points to the market trying to push the currency weaker as opposed to the authorities. Um, so uh, we, we're getting to important levels now. The offshore renminbi at 695 against the dollar is a level the market expects to be protected. Um, if that's not the case and we, and we rapidly go to seven, uh, there could be a, a backlash to that um, in, in emerging markets generally, actually, I would say. So let's start with the Chinese currency and the tolerance of officials. Do you think the line in the sand for officials is 6.95 on the offshore rate, Shahab? That's what the market is, has felt. The market has felt that uh, that level uh, is important because what they wouldn't want to see uh, is actual tests of seven because that, that's too risky in, in a sense. Um, in, because once you go through that level, there's always a, the possibility of a major spike. So this 695 level has been, for the market, a key level. Uh, and there has been an expectation that, uh, given that talks are still continuing, um, the Chinese would not want to see a big push for the dollar above the seven level against their currency, uh, simply in order to not antagonize the U.S. So if we now see that happen, perhaps the market will interpret that uh, as a green light for yeah. the authorities. Um, so this is, this is a potentially big problem because this wasn't the case, for example, back in Q4 yeah. uh, when, prop, when, when we had a similar test of these levels. Shab, thrilled you're with us this morning. I can't say enough, folks, how wrong I was. I thought, I, you know, Friday, I, I, I had the surveillance nap. And oh, I you were said, looking for a snooze of a Friday, like a were you? a snooze of a Friday. And <laughs> let me tell you, folks, to start with Jalanus on a Friday works right now. We could talk to him for an hour. Mohamed Alarian writes for Bloomberg Opinion. Ambrose Evans Pritchard writes for The Telegraph. And the summary of these two brilliant essays, and I remember John Alarian talking to uh, Ambrose at uh, the thing in Lake Como. Um, what they're talking about is a dollar shortage. And that China is constrained because they and everybody else out there has a dollar shortage. Explain to our global Wall Street audience what guys like you think or say or mean when you talk about a global dollar shortage. Well, to be honest, it can mean many different things. But I think at the most uh, critical level for the market, uh, what it means is that uh, there is uh, a need to refinance dollar loans, um, yep. for example, by the corporate sector uh, in countries like China, uh, and a sense that 
they may find that difficult to do uh, under certain circumstances. Uh, and when that's the case, that tends to put upward pressure uh, on the dollar itself as well. Um, so that's one form of dollar shortage. But frankly, when you look at a country like China, the market also is concerned, tends to be worried about the possibility of capital flights. Um, you could argue that given the lack of global financial diversification in China, uh, there is a permanent dollar shortage there. Um, and clearly, when the currency starts to fall, the odds rise that uh, investors and others locally try to find new ways to exactly. get their money out of China and put more, further pressure on the currency. So, so I think you know, this idea of a dollar shortage is, is definitely in the market's consciousness and it takes many different forms. So, but, Shahab, uh, let's but, talk about the fear of capital flight. Right the fear of capital flight dominated the story back in 2015, 2016. How close are we to that? Do you still consider it a situation that we are nowhere near 15, 16? I think what's happened since then is that the Chinese authorities uh, have ramped up the, the number of measures they, they can use to try to uh, keep the pressure on locally to stop money leaving China. But, th but that's a different story, though, um, if uh, you get to a point where there's such a dramatic loss of confidence in China, um, where locals yeah. find new ways and take bigger okay, risks. And I, and I think that's something that could come through. But eventually. what's so important here, away from the drama of a 2-3 standard deviation move, is the grind of we can't sell our u.s securities fine we've got to you know get their yield in and there's no place else to go besides u.s securities we all know that but shop what's the outcome for their adjacent nations em the pacific rim if we get a grind in renminbi weaker well i think it still puts pressure uh on the currencies regionally if that's what you perceive because what that would probably mean is that the Chinese government believes that it needs a weaker renminbi longer term because of the higher odds of, of weaker economic growth and that it's trying its best to control that. Um, but once the market perceives that that's the way the Chinese government is, is looking at things, uh, it will quickly look at the other Asian emerging markets uh, and Asia-Pacific currencies and yeah. see them as, as fair game. Uh, so I think... Either way, whether it's a slow grind lower uh, yeah. or a more dramatic collapse in the currency, uh, there's going to be a lot of pressure on, on the Asia-Pacific currency. I mean, good morning, Michael Purvis. John Farrell, ADXY, the Asian basket of currencies, ex-Japan, is down almost 3% since March. It's been really tough. And what was interesting about the session yesterday is we had a rally in U.S. equities. We did not get any pickup in emerging market equities exactly. whatsoever. It, well Just said. didn't participate. This morning, China looks weak, Shahab. From a market perspective, the equity market down 2.5%, the Chinese currency is weaker. As we digest the commentary coming out of China, the government keeps saying the following. It will work to counteract the effects of more U.S. tariffs and keep the economy in a reasonable range. This is according to the National Development and Reform Commission, studying the impact of U.S. tariffs and will roll out responsive measures when necessary. Shahab, the hope is always that we get stimulus. Kit Jukes of Sokjen writing this morning, evidence of a global economic slowdown continues to build. Bond markets have been beneficiaries. Equities are torn between the negative impact of slower growth and the feel-good of accommodative central banks. What kind of accommodation do we get from Chinese authorities? I think the expectation from China is more monetary easing, for example, in the form of um, 
again, reducing uh, reserve requirements on the banking system, for example, something we've seen recently, um, but potentially even rate cuts as well. But there's also great hopes uh, on the fiscal side. Um, and we've seen, for example, measures to cut the tax burden on consumers. The problem is that there is a sense that China has already used these levers in the past to, to great effect and that there's a big credit overhang in China already, which may, may constrain the government. So, and that this could be exactly what the U.S. believes as well uh, in thinking that it can push China to make big yeah. concessions. Uh, and so the fact is we don't really know. Um, no one can really tell the extent to which China's pain threshold can sustain you know, over the next few months. Uh, the U.S. appears willing to, to test that. Um, but the problem for the global economy and stock markets is that if both sides dig in, um, then yeah. the problems can get much worse. Right now, there is a sense of, of a kind of a G20 put, you could argue, in the sense that there's a, going to be a meeting oh, between I like Xi that. and Trump a G20. Uh, you know, in June, which, which uh, <laughs> some hope will lead to a resolution, <clears throat> at least yeah. for a few months. Um, if that were to fail to come through, I think then uh, that's when things get much worse. Very good stuff. Nice Thank you so Thank much. You. Terrific briefing as well. We got eight minutes in this block, which is way too short. Cruel and unusual punishment with Miranda Carr. She's with Haitong International. This truly could be a one-hour briefing this morning. Let's try to get it going. Uh, Miranda, I'm going to give you an open question before John goes to the dynamics of Renminbi and that. You've got to get to the weekend, get to the Sunday talk shows, and see where the trade talks are Monday morning. What will you focus on? Well, it depends what the U.S. now does in um, whether it tries to ratchet up the tensions in terms of... I mean, Right, right. Let me interrupt. This is really important. The Secretary of Commerce disagrees with you. Wilbur Ross said yesterday on Bloomberg, he feels the Chinese have to respond. You're going against the Secretary and saying it's what the U.S. does? Well, from China's point of view, they regard the, the Huawei um, accusations and others, so the action taken against Huawei this week as further ratcheting up of tensions after the, after the, the tariff increased to 25%. And there was an interesting comment from um, Wang Yang, who's a um, um, Politburo um, member. Um, so he was giving a briefing and saying that the maximum hit that the China sees from the trade tariffs is only 1%. So if you're talking about 1% hit on a 6 to 6 0.5% target. Um, this means that basically they're gearing up to, you know, to take quite a, quite a tough stance because they're saying it's not going to affect us that badly. We, we can cope with this. Um, so expecting China to then um, take um, measures to, to offset the tensions when it's saying that actually we can cope um, is, you know, that maybe the US is expecting too much. Miranda, let's talk about what the Chinese can do to offset some of the tensions domestically. A lot of people have taken to trying to translate Chinese media and the message in Chinese media. It's a little bit more explicit today, whereby a piece of commentary was carried by state-run media, including Xinhua News Agency and the People's Daily 2. And essentially it said, without new moves that show the US is sincere, it is meaningless for officials to come to China. Miranda, translate that for us. How important is that statement, that piece of commentary carried by state-run media? 
well, it is, it is interesting that they're, they're, they do feel that they can take a, take a much t- um, tougher stance. Um, you know, the, the, because the economy in Q1 wasn't quite as bad as expected, um, and because the tariffs um, don't seem to be having you know, quite the catastrophic um, economic impact that everyone thought this time this time last year then then it's saying no we, we can stand up and it's particularly you know because if you think some of the measures that um, were were put forward China sees as undermining the very essence of its um, state-run system um, and and also sort of the, you know the entire Chinese system which is it's now sort of promoting both in China and throughout the world and so if it sees a threat to that um, but without too bad an economic consequence. I mean, they, they may be a little bit too confident about how um, how little a impact it's going to have, and obviously that's part of the negotiating stance. Um, but, but 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 yeah, they feel they feel whether rightly or wrongly they can take they can afford to take a tougher stance. There was a piece carried by the Nikkei Asian Review in the last 24 hours that I thought was absolutely fascinating to read, and I encourage all of our listeners to try and find it. You can get it under the headline, How Xi Jinping's Colleagues Rejected an Unequal Trade Deal. How much power does the president currently have in China right now? We typically usually, and I think it's a mistake to frame this as a president of the United States that faces re-election in 2020 and a president in China that faces no election whatsoever and no political pressure. But at home, it seems that he is under, increasingly, relatively speaking, more pressure, Miranda. How do you frame that for customers, clients at the moment? Well, yes, because there's not... um Universal agreement that, that that everyone should be taking a tough stance, um, and and that the, the the U.S. trade war is the right way to go. But the the um, I mean, there is there is much more of a idea that China should be standing up to um, standing up to the U.S. Um, yeah. But the idea of, of of threatening the relationship and also the sort of long term cooperation that that generates a lot more. Um, obviously, de- um, debate, um, and so you're going to have to match off. And particularly, I mean, the, the, the risk is that um, some of the economic um, performance has actually is going to come to an end um, because some of the trade um, was actually front loaded. So you've already seen some benefits. Now we're getting yeah. to a stage where sort of you know the, the, the economy is slowing, the trade impact is actually coming home to roost. Um, at the very time that the, the trade tensions are right. just like ratcheting up another stage, and this is a time where actually you could see, you know, sort of the economic consequences being much more negative, um, and then okay. you to see much more disagreement um, coming through. Well, let's get real. And anybody that's been to China knows real means pork prices. I showed I showed pork inflation in China a couple of days ago. Miranda Carm looking at U.S. hog prices, lean hogs. They've been negative one standard deviation in price for a good three years. And all of a sudden, even U.S. pork prices are up on trend about one standard deviation. Mm. What synthesized for us the tension of the base food of China for the Communist Party in Beijing, what does it mean if they see elevated pork prices and pork inflation uh, in China? Well, that that is, I mean, food inflation is a is is a key issue. But the, I mean, a lot of the pork price um, inflation was caused by the by the is the illness by the swine fever. Yeah, yeah, uh, yes, and 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 so it's a. Uh, 
it, it, it's a consequence of that. It's not part of the part of the um, trade war. Although obviously, if you can't then import U.S. pork, then the the the, the, price, the domestic prices rise. Um, but but it's more. I think the, the the question is not so much on the on the food prices so much. That's not so much of a tipping point. But the um, if you get um, the, 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 there was also expectations that if you did see the trade war economic growth was cut by 1%, then you see unemployment rise to maybe sort of from 5 to 5% to 6%. And it's it's the employment issue, um, yeah. which is arguably a bigger um, a bigger cause of concern. Okay, but that tends, that tends to shift policy. Um, and we've, we, you know, it's always, even though everyone focuses on the GDP target, right. the focus is always really on employment. Okay, I got to get this question, Miranda. This is what you're best at. That labor policy, is it different than 10 years ago? or 30 years ago, the Cultural Revolution, is the Beijing labor policy, is it a new policy? The, 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 the employment has always been, I mean, that that's, I mean, no one's providing 100% employment anymore. And it's not the sort of the, if you like, the iron rice bowl that you, that you would expect. Right. Um, but, 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 but everyone knows that you still have to keep, um, and, and you have fewer graduates coming in now, you know, the, the, the demographics are slowing down. Um, but you do still need to keep um, a, a good, healthy employment rate. Um, and, and that's, that's always, um, you know, that there isn't, the hundred percent state support, but people need that employment to, to, to keep up, and it's still it's still okay. very much focused on that. Very valuable, Miranda Carr. Thank you so much with Haitong International in London. A briefing here in China. This is the interview of the day. If you have any kind of a pulse for American politics, why do I say that? Because this is not going to be a homogenized, sanitized candidate interview. We're going to actually talk to somebody who speaks English. Kate Benningfield uh, works for the former Vice President Biden of Delaware, but far more importantly has experience with uh, Christopher Dodd, John Edwards, and Gene Shaheen, among others, uh, along the way. Kate, thrilled to have you with us as you do the operational bit for Joe Biden. I want to take you back to the Democratic campaign of 2004 in your ute where John Edwards got up and changed the American dialogue Speaking of two Americas, what are the two Americas of your candidate, Joe Biden? Hi, well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Um, so, you know, Joe Biden is running for president for three reasons. He's been out for the last uh, three weeks making the case to voters uh, in all of the early states and in Pennsylvania uh, about um, uh, the need to reclaim the soul of this nation. Uh, you know, he truly believes that, <laughs> yeah, I've seen we, that. Are, we are at a place of moral reckoning for this country um, and that this is a moment for us to get past this you know, broken government that isn't working for people. Um, and to your point about two Americas, I mean, he's going to be talking about this in Philly uh, tomorrow. He's got a big uh, right. his first kind of kickoff rally. Um, which is the informal book? She, John, she's promoting, you know, the moment for the vice president. She's I'm allowed shocked. to do that. That's why she's on the program. Kate, okay, okay, <laughs> cut to the chase. Kate, okay, it's it's 2020. It's October. You haven't slept since June, and Joe Biden has to talk to two Americas. Secretary Clinton had a bigger popular vote, but didn't resonate with two Americas. Which two Americas is your candidate going to try to resonate with? 
Well, you're first of all, you're putting the frame from the Edwards campaign on our on uh, our current campaign. So, <laughs> but uh, but look, he uh, you know he is somebody who comes from uh, from middle class roots himself. Uh, you know, working yep. people know working people know that he is somebody who understands them, who understands their concerns, who knows what it's like to you know lay in bed at night and look at the ceiling and wonder how you're going to be able to afford health care or what's going to happen right. uh, if you have a health crisis in your family. How are you going to take care of it? How are you going to afford to send your kid to college? Uh, people know that he's somebody who he's, has lived that experience himself. And so, um, you know. He, okay, so that's one of the Americas. I get that. Is his <laughs> other America disaffected Republicans? Look, he's, he's, he believes that we have to come to consensus. You know, it was something he said in New Hampshire uh, yesterday, I believe, two days ago. The days all run together. Um, uh, that, <laughs> That's what happens when you don't sleep. Right. Uh, that, you know, without consensus in our government, power accrues to the executive and to the president. And, and, and he can abuse it. And so, you know, he believes that we're never going to be able to get anything done uh, for people if we can't come to some kind of consensus. Um, and, you know, he's had experience. Look, nobody has uh, has had more success, you know, staring Republicans down and exacting concessions from them uh, than Vice President Biden. You go back to, like, the fiscal cliff deal in the White House. Um, you know, he was able to ex- extract concessions from McConnell. So, you know, nobody has, uh, you know, I'd put his, his, his chops up against anybody's on that. Um, but he also understands, and I think that the American people understand, that right now government is not working. Um, and we need a change. And the kind of change he represents is getting back to um, a place where, uh, you know, government is functional and things get done on behalf of the American people. That's always the pitch, Kate, to be fair. Every time there's an election, not just in the United States, but anywhere else, we need a change. But a return to the status quo, is that really a change? It's not a return to the status quo. I mean, the status quo right now is is broken, right? I mean, the status quo we have right now is a government where... Um, you know, people's concerns are not uh, taken seriously where the, uh, you know, wealth is accruing to the top of our economy, where, you know, people aren't feeling the benefits of economic policies, where we have a president who um, is trying to divide us along lines of race and gender, uh, sexual orientation. That's the status quo right now. And that is not, that is you know, Joe Biden represents the polar opposite of that. Um, and that's that's what he that's the you know kind of leadership that he would bring to the White House. Well, Kate, let's wrap things up with how much daylight there is between Joe Biden and the president of the United States on China right now. How much daylight is there? Well, look, what Joe Biden has said and a point he's made for for many years is that he uh, he thinks it's always a mistake to bet against American workers. Um, yeah. And he believes that this president has made some real mistakes by uh, not bringing our allies along to these discussions with with China, not bringing the full weight of our negotiating allies to the table um, and not having labor at the table. I mean, that's, you know, as as president, um, you know, he believes is important right. to to and that in order to force China's hand, uh, that we have to be able to bring the, the full negotiating weight of our allies along with us. And that's something that, yeah. that he would do. Um, as president. Okay, yeah, this was a free pass. I mean, we got through this without talking about those those pesky socialist Democrats or Democratic socialists. Well, we there's, ran out of time. There's other candidates. You know? we've, got, we've got a, a lot to do. Kate, we'd love to have you back again. Kate Benningfield, uh, working with Joe Biden is, uh, uh, on the campaign, of course, centered out of Philadelphia. The announcement made, I believe it was yesterday. Kate, and I'll make a serious pitch. We would love to speak to the vice president uh, as the campaign goes forward. Uh, Clearly an important voice across the American 
political landscape. Kate Bedingfield with Thanks, Kate. Joe Biden. Financial markets Yields are rallying. going higher. Yeah. <laughs> Financial markets just rallied sharply. And Tom and I, we sit, we look at each other and we say, you know, what do we do from here? Fortunately, our next guest can be very helpful in answering that question. Bob Michael is global CIO of J.P. Morgan Asset Management, head of the uh, J.P. Morgan's global fixed income. Bob, thanks so much for joining us. You know, I guess the, uh, you know, the real question is what do investors do from here? How are you approaching the markets? What a great time to be a bond. You've got central banks on hold. You've got the global economy slowing. You don't see a lot of inflation. The Fed raised rates for three years. We would have liked to have seen rates higher, but you're supposed to buy in here. You're looking at a 10-year treasury that's just below 2.4%. You could pick up maybe a percent or so by buying investment-grade credit. You don't fight this. You go and buy bonds before they continue to drop lower in yield. So, I mean, am I going, where am I going on the credit spectrum? Am I going a little bit further out uh, on the credit quality spectrum? Well, I think this is where you have to get a bit choosier. I think for, for credit, um, go certainly a little bit longer duration. I'd say the intermediate part of the curve, five to 10 year. Um, you can go into the high yield space right now. In high yield, you're actually getting a yield that's about 6.5% with a credit spread that's just over 4%. So it's compensating you for default rates uh, that are still under 1%. So you're okay still holding some high yield in here. Bob Michael, it's Friday. I'm waiting for interest rates to move higher. It's been a long wait, as Paul. <laughs> it's been a decade. There's a third edition of Inside the Yield Book, Sidney Homer, Martin Leibowitz. I'm very proud that I had something to do with the reissuance of that a lifetime ago. Bob Michael, if I read Inside the Yield Book today, would it help me in this bond market? No, it, it would confuse you. You would miss everything. That's, that's Bob, old. This is why we love having Bob Michael on, folks. He's 100% correct. Go. This, this is outdated thinking. The central banks have an entire new arsenal of tools that they're deploying. They're sucking the life out of the bond market. You can sit there and look at historic metrics and say, I know the Fed should be at 4% and the 10-year yep. should be at 5%. Tom, you will get there okay. in 2026. And you can see that the always <laughs> frazzled Michael is even fired up. He sounds almost like Jamie Dimon right now. He's so fired up. <laughs> Bob, Michael, if that's the case, the bond pros seriously are going to say the vector from where we are now back to normal is going to be some form of jump condition. Do we have to set ourselves up for sharp price decline in fixed income assets? somewhere down the road? Absolutely not. The problem is everyone is already set up for that. If you look at the flow in fixed income over the last three years, it's gone into money market funds and short duration funds. Everyone expected they would buy bonds at the end of this year or the start of next year. When we look at the amount of money in money market funds, it's up to $3.2 trillion. Yeah. That's the highest it's been since the financial crisis. So, I mean, the only, 
Ahead, the Bob. only money coming into the bond market right now is coming in from overseas. Domestic investors are still waiting. Okay. They're not going to the, get the, the chance. Okay, we've been making jokes, folks. This is serious, and this is a theme of the day off from Mohammed Alarian and Ambrose Evans Pritchard, that there's a dollar shortage out there abroad. There's a certain sweat and desperation, which you see every day worldwide at J.P. Morgan. Explain to our audience the desperation of foreign big money institutions that they must own full faith and credit America. We complain about short money at around two and a half percent and having to buy the 10 year at 2.4%. If you're in Switzerland, it's minus three quarters of a percent. If you're in Japan or Europe, you still have negative rates. That money is looking to find yield somewhere. And that money has been coming into the U.S. market and has been hedged back to the base currency of whatever the country is. That money is now starting to come in unhedged. So so money coming out of Asia and out of Europe is now coming into the bond market and buying bonds and not hedging the dollar out because they want the safe haven status of the U.S. dollar. But we got to leave it there. Bob Michael, thank you so much. That was a real clinic from J.P. Morgan. This is a joy because when the oil industry turns upside down, everybody dials 1-800. They dial Daniel Jurgen, you know, all the usual victims. And Amy Myers Jaffe, who has a shingle out at the Council on Foreign Relations. What you need to know is she's interesting when oil blows up. And Amy Myers Jaffe is really interesting when it's quiet in oil which has been the strangeness of the last uh, two weeks. She is the founder of the Baker effort at Rice University on Energy. She owns Rice University Energy Oil Economics and has worked with many other institutions now writing at the CFR. Amy, wonderful to have you with us today. Everybody would say with the news flow, Brent in, in West Texas should be gyrating around. They're not. Why? You know, I think the traders are wrong. I mean, there's this tug of war between the negative China news and uh, all these sort of quote-unquote sabotage acts. And I tell people we're using the word sabotage to make it sound small, um, but it's not small. Um, it's a it's a sign of escalating yeah. conflict, and the targets have been very strategic. What's the elasticity of that nexus of supply and demand right now? How tight is the market? And, you know, not to get mathy on a Friday, we don't do that, particularly when the weather's this gorgeous. But, but what's the responsiveness we will see given an event in supply and demand? You know, the U.S. has this upside potential, but it's not instantaneous. So, you know, if we got to a $70 WTI price, you know, you have analysts like Cornerstone Macro and City saying that, you know, you could have you know, up to twice as much oil coming out of the United States production over the next two years. But, you know, that's over the next two years. We have to get through the summer. And OPEC capacity is really constrained. It's falling. The reports out of Venezuela is that production is down to 500,000 barrels a day. You know, before a month or two ago, we were saying a million. Right. You've got constraints now with Saudi Arabia because their pipeline is down. You have the contaminated oil from Russia. 
that's clogging pipelines and inventory in uh, Eastern Europe. So that's a constraint. Um, so, you know, you have these pockets and then, and then we have to worry about escalating conflict in the Middle East. Um, Energy Intelligence Group is reporting that Saudi Arabia is beefing up security at its offshore oil fields that border Iran's waters. So there's a lot of risk in the market, and I think the market is just too relaxed. What do you think the mar- is, what do you think the market is missing here? Is it the supply issues that you just outlined, or does that have a, or does the market maybe have a more dovish view or uh, bearish view of demand? Well, I think they have a very dovish view of demand. Um, no one is talking about a recession starting right away this summer in the United States. Gasoline demand is, is on track to be higher this year. Um, you know, I've heard different analysts talking about China. One has to figure that the Chinese will at least put a temporary stimulus into the market. I guess some people are judging because they haven't intervened <clears throat> to stop the slide in the Chinese stock market. Um, but, yeah. you know, oil demand might be a slow responder in China to the stock market decline. So I, I do think that the market is anticipating the lower demand imme- as being immediate and the supply outages as being temporary. And um, and maybe that's not right. Maybe the supply outages might become worse or more lasting um, and maybe the demand fall off will definitely come, but maybe the timeline for it is farther away. So, Amy, let's uh, pick a scenario where, you know, over the next several weeks or a month or so, sometime over the summer, the situation with Iran does go sideways. Where do you think WTI could go in that scenario? Well, let's. What do you mean by sideways? Well, you I just meant that we we could have a problem with Iran and there would be a supply disruption. Okay, my feeling is, you know, I mean, at a minimum. You know, we could have another five to ten dollars in the price just from a from the conflict worsening, um, and and having there be a problem with perceptions about how much oil is available. Because yeah. remember, right now there's oil in inventory out in the Middle East and other places, and they're using that inventory, you know, to supply right. people. The Europeans are drawing down inventory to replace the lost Russian barrels. You know, it's a big financial dispute yeah. over the contaminated oil. But, you know, once that inventory is used, it's gone. Where's the strategic petroleum reserve? Is it like underneath CFR up on Park Avenue? Yeah, there where, you go. Where, where's it actually? Where, well, where is the thing? It's located in Louisiana and Texas. And indeed, um, I think that the administration is looking carefully at whether it needs to release the strategic petroleum reserve. Right. Remember the Congress wanted to sell it anyway. I mean, but Amy, to be honest, you're too young to remember this, but I remember the hysteria over the strategic petroleum reserve. Is that, is that what's next here? Uh, I, I think the, the strategic petroleum reserve is on the table. Let's remember we're also going into the U.S. hurricane season. Let's hope there's no hurricanes that disrupt U.S. production this year. Um, but, uh, you know, it just stuns me um, that the oil trading community, they're either so dependent on their algorithms oh, listen or they're to you. just so <laughs> pessimistic on the economy. It's just hard to believe that that makes sense. She spent way too t- much time in the ivory. <laughs> did you see how she just went after I did, our core I did. audience? Absolutely. She's vicious. <laughs> so, Amy, you know, one of the things I've heard about as I talk to energy people really over the last several years is just this extraordinary uh, amount of oil in the U.S. now with the shale oil. Just give us a sense of why 
it's not it, we can't just simply turn on the spigots and get that oil into the marketplace. You know, we can, but there's a time lag. Companies have their drilling schedules, and we know what those are. Those are going to produce, say, another 800 or a million barrels a day over this year. Mm. For companies to suddenly have the money and run out and put on more rigs, you know, that's not going to happen yeah. in one day. I got to get the sand there. I got to get the rigs there. We have to have a board meeting and decide to inc- increase our spending when I've got, you know, my investors telling me I need to have capital discipline, right? So, you know, it can happen and, and yeah. it could be a big boost. And, and that could happen in three months, six months, eight months. Yeah. Um, but it's not something that's going to happen in the month of June and July when refinery uh, runs go up to supply gasoline. Amy uh, Myers, Jeffy, one final question. I, I don't need a buy, hold, sell. I understand that's not your game. What do you think of Anadarko, Chevron, Occidental, Total, that whole dance that we saw two weeks ago? Well, you know, I like Vicki Haloub. I think she made the boldest move since the 80s when T. Boone Pickens was bold. And <laughs> honestly... Uh, if she were a man, everybody would say, oh, she's a risk taker. How bold? Because if we have a conflict in the Middle East or just this sabotage makes the market worse, she's going to look like a genius having consolidated more property and being able to get those uh, uh, economies of scale together for the Permian. Now, I don't like Total's purchase of um, of Mozambique. I, I think that between, you know, these long-term risks to the Chinese economy and um, and the overall, we have so much natural gas in the United States and other places, you know, I'm not so optimistic about, you know, African natural uh, a gas leaving as LNG as Total, but, you know, power to them if they think they can make a business out of that. Um, and, uh, you know, people, the thing that I've heard that I think is a serious challenge for Oxy is that companies always have difficulty merging two companies when there's cultural differences. Um, and the you know sort of management style of Anadarko and the management style of Occidental are very different. So that's going to be a challenge. Amy, thank you so much for joining us. She's a classic. Amy Myers Jaffe uh, with the Council on Foreign Relations, a Rubenstein senior fellow there. And, and I really want to point out her founding abilities with James Baker at Rice University, where they really jump-started Texas scholarship on energy. She is just uh, wonderful. Paul, what she just said there, I mean, I don't have an opinion on this, uh, but boy, that zeitgeist is really out there on OxyForward. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.